Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting August 22nd. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... We have a world that is consuming more and more saturated fat and more and more high-fat meats and dairy products than we ever could have imagined 10 or 20 years ago. That's Barry Popkin, author of the article, The World is Fat, in the September issue of Scientific American. We'll hear from him this week, plus we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Barry Popkin is a professor of nutrition epidemiology at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where he directs the Interdisciplinary Center for Obesity. His research focuses on the changes in diet and activity in the U.S., China, Brazil, the Philippines, and other countries, and his article appears in the special September issue of Scientific American magazine, which is called Feast and Famine, all about diet, health, and food. I called Popkin at his home in Chapel Hill. Hi, Professor Popkin. How are you today? Fantastic. Tell me about this article and and this subject, The World is Fat. Uh, Obviously, it's fat if you walk around the U.S., but, but the world is now fat, and there's an amazing fact right in the beginning of, of your article, and that is it's, there are not just more obese people in the world than there are hungry people in the world now. There are actually more obese people in developing countries than there are hungry people in developing countries. That really floored me. Yes. it's uh, What we've really seen in the developing world is in the last two decades uh, exponential change in a vast array of forces that have led people to move less and eat a lot more, and the resultant increase in overweight and obesity is unprecedented. When you say move less, you mean actually walk less or bicycle less, Walk less, less right? lift less, sit more. And worldwide, the figures are astounding. You have... Uh... Uh, a figure in the article, 1.3 billion overweight people versus only 800 million underweight people. Right, and uh, and that the rate of increase of overweight is much higher than and the rate of decrease of... is Underweight is decreasing and overweight is increasing, so the figures are splitting. And the estimate of 1.3 billion is at the low level. There are people that estimate that it's double over underweight already. But the point is, if you go to Egypt, you go to South Africa, you go to Mexico, you go to a large number of low and middle income countries, countries we think of as very poor like Egypt, or countries we think of kind of lower middle income like South Africa or Mexico, what you find are two-thirds to three-fourths of the men and women in the countries are overweight and obese. You you talk in the article about the situation in Mexico and how it has changed in less than one generation. It's astounding. Right. We're essentially speaking of a country, Mexico, that in 1989 had a very small proportion of adults overweight and no children overweight. And all of a sudden, you fast forward to 15 or 16 more years, and you have 71% of the women and 65% of the men overweight. But worse than that in Mexico is during that same period, they've reached a level of diabetes that's uh, equal to what we had around 10 to 20 years ago in the U.S. And they're increasing the rates of diabetes so high in all sorts of other complications that overweight and obesity that we're in a real heart disease as well as overweight and obesity pandemic in that country. That's 
only one of about 15 to 18 countries where we have more than half of the population overweight and obese in the world. And and is that because you've basically taken a, a, a physiology that evolved under one set of conditions and, and have thrust it into this this world of plenty? Essentially that. And let me give us an example, the, the question of beverages. If you think back for a million years up to 10 to 12,000 years ago, all that we consumed as a race of homonyms and later homo sapiens is water after maybe consuming for a year or two or three breast milk in infancy. So then, and you clearly we didn't want to evolve so that those who consume water would consume less food. So we essentially evolved a system of metabolism where the beverages we consume don't affect the food we consume. Then, all of a sudden, you get wine, beer, and other alcoholic beverages, which we've had since around 10,000 B.C., and then in the last 150, 200 years, all the new beverages, the carbonated beverages, the pasteurized milks, and so forth, and the, the fruit juices and, and, and that are, are shipped and boxed and created, and we see a new generation. But even up to 1950, we consumed very few calories from beverages. In the last 60 years, we've gone from consuming almost no calories from beverages to a fifth of our caloric intake in the U.S., and about the same in Mexico, and about the same in a dozen other countries, and some less and some more. But the point is, all of those calories we consume, but it doesn't affect the food we take in. So if you consume water, you don't gain weight. If you consume Coke or Pepsi, you gain weight. It's that simple. And you also identify in the article a couple of other major developments that have contributed to the uh, the worldwide obesity right, epidemic. Right, and most of those are really on the food side uh, because what we it's a lot harder to expend energy uh, to make up if we drink a Coke or eat a, a hamburger. So the second, the big trends in the world are, one, the sweetening of our diet, not only beverages in particular, but also foods. The second is in the area of edible oils and vegetable oils. This is something if you lived in the U.S. or U.K. or Europe, maybe starting in the 50s and 60s, you started getting margarine and vegetable oils and so forth. And But in the lower and middle income world, all these liquid oils and these hydrogenated solid oils, we think of Crisco, Crisco if you're in India, you think of Vanaspati and other countries, but they're hard oils and the, and the liquid ones. All of these essentially came into the developing world very cheaply in the 70s and 80s. And they Loaded in consumption in the 80s in these countries, so that a country like China, people consume 300, 400 calories a day right now from vegetable oils. That's a lot of calories from from just pure fat, uh, and it it has value to them. It makes food taste better. It makes things smoother on the tongue. There are a variety of reasons why fat is is nice. Uh, so that's Trend number two, the third trend is what I call animal foods, animal source foods. That's dairy products, milk and cheese, 
that yogurt, that egg, fish, poultry, beef, and pork mainly. And in one country, it may be in India, it may be dairy. In China, it may be pork and beef. And in another part of the developing world, it may be only beef. But whatever it is, it is really increased. Most of the increase in the world is coming from consumption of these products in the developing world. And what's important is the world price of beef in terms of 100 kilograms uh, 40 years ago was around $500 for, in, in real terms. It, it doesn't really matter what the terms are, but it went down to a fifth of that today or fourth of that. So the world prices have cut so much for these animal foods and a number of other products based on subsidies from the West, based on just major pushes to promote consumption of these items so that we have a world that is consuming more and more saturated fat and more and more high-fat meats and dairy products than we ever could have imagined 10 or 20 years ago. It strikes me that what what you have now then is is a huge public relations problem because how can you tell these people who have risen out of poverty to to the degree where they can now afford these foods that are associated with affluence how can you how can you tell them go back to your uh, your previous diet of uh, vegetables and whole grains because it was actually healthier for you when when it just feels like you're uh, you're being uh, paternalistic with that kind of message right that's one way of looking at it uh Clearly, the diet of 25 years ago or 20 years ago when I've, I've lived in most continents of the world, when I lived in villages in each of the regions, the diet was missing something. Uh, so it wasn't as healthful as it could have been, and that's why we had hungry and malnourished, particularly children, but also adults. Uh, and there are still pockets of hunger in many, many countries throughout the world, certainly in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. But what's happened is the same people who were hungry and malnourished 20 years ago are today overweight and obese. So it's in the same human being that you're telling him that, which is difficult. But it's the same politician. It's the politician who's been fighting against hunger. You all of a sudden have to say, no, we're not concerned about poverty and hunger any more in Mexico or Chile or or China. Now we have to be concerned with obesity and heart disease, and we're losing people from that, and it's going to destroy our health system in another 10 years. And some countries are really willing to take it on. So Mexico is an example where the Minister of Health wants the tax items, wants to take a really aggressive stand in the cabinet, and many people in the government are behind that person in the Congress. On the other hand, I work in a country like China where there's, it's very hard yet for the political system to truly take the gutsy changes they need to deal with something that's going to eat up their economy. You know, we, we've seen in this country that if you do raise taxes on cigarettes and alcohol, you do get a public health effect out of that. But you, you're never going to be able to raise taxes on soft drinks in this country for for an alleged public health effect, I think. Uh, I'm not so sure. 
I talk to my state legislators about issues like this. They tell me what they're doing today in a state that's quasi-liberal, quasi-conservative like North Carolina, very mixed. They couldn't have conceived of doing legislatively four years ago. And they're saying the climate is changing so rapidly. People are so concerned now that in the U.S. and Australia and, and countries throughout the world, we're getting teenagers and younger children with adult diabetes, a condition that we didn't see until you were age 40, 25 years ago. All of a sudden, we're getting 8 to 20-year-olds with these conditions. That's scaring a lot of parents and a moving public opinion far over. In fact, I think in some cases, because of the the funding and the way Congress is handled with business and so forth, Congress is often behind the ball compared to the states right now. And every state in the country has had legislation in the last year in my country and I've got a few countries that really want to take this on very seriously and will. The U.S. may lag, but when other countries have success from this, and when we see our medical care costs going over 20 25% of our budget, you can bet we're going to start to take more action. Other than raising taxes on uh, high-calorie foods to, to try to change people's habits, what what are some other possible solutions to this well, worldwide I wouldn't problem? Do, first off, I would say high-calorie beverages. It's clear that we know if you consume a beverage, you just add calories. If you consume a food, it's, there's a trade-off there. I would start to work on getting rid of advertising and promotion of all the, the sugary, fatty foods that we have, starting off with children, but do like we did with, in the end, really control that. I would begin to start to think of issues related to portion sizing and portion size pricing at least. And there's a number of trends in, it depends on the country. In China, I'm working with them on edible oil taxing and changing certain subsidies. Uh, in our country, in the U.S., and in the almost of the higher income world, we subsidize the production of animal source foods. And we don't give money in, in the same amount to fruits and vegetables. I would shift it around. I'd start to remove slowly the subsidies on one and start to really ratchet up the amount of money we're funding to, to, to allow us to have cheaper, fresh fruits and vegetables and canned and frozen fruits and vegetables. We, we can change the pricing system a lot easier than we can change other things. And that's what worked for tobacco much more than just educating people. We need to do that, too. And that's happening. People are starting to be concerned. Parents are starting to be concerned. But only middle and upper class across the world. We still, most of the overweight and obesity in the world is in the low and middle income populations. It's not a problem of the rich. So we need to find ways that will benefit the low and middle income groups who may not have access to knowledge or have the education to absorb it in the same way. So what do you say, and you, you actually addressed it in the very last thing that you just said, but theoretically, what do you say to uh, to a free market uh, advocate who says, well, you know, the, the information's out there and then people have a choice. And if they want to eat these foods, why should you do something to try to control the markets to stop them? Well, I'll give you, the first answer is, we have been subsidizing for 115 years 
the production of sugar to make it very cheap. We've been doing the same for oils, and we've been doing the same for animal source foods. So we now have to turn around to the real price of that and find ways to have people pay the true cost of what they're consuming. And part of the costs are environmental, part of them are in health terms. And so that's the first answer is that there's no such thing as a free market. We're subsidizing all these products that he says we're not touching. The second issue is there are huge social and economic costs associated with obesity, just like there were with tobacco and lack of seatbelt use and other things. People are being killed, and health care costs are skyrocketing. It's those health care costs that are going to destroy the U.S. economy and the economies of many countries unless we find a way to come to grips with them. The article is called The World is Fat in the September Scientific American. Dr. Popkin, thank you very much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. The entire September issue of Scientific American is also available in digital form on our website, www.siam.com. Barry Popkin is also the chair of the Nutrition Transition Committee of the International Union for the Nutrition Sciences. For more on his research, go to www.nutrans.org. That's N-U-T-R-A-N-S dot org. Popkin's book, also called The World is Fat, comes out in April 2008. We'll be right back. Science Video News, now at Siam.com. Easy to view and updated three times a day. Video News, just a click away at Siam.com slash video. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a viral infection might be a factor in some cases of obesity. Story two, you might have been able to outrun a T-Rex. Computer analysis indicates that T-Rex probably reached a top speed of only about nine miles per hour. Story three, a CNBC anchor warned that lead-free toys and safe food would drive up prices. And story four, cats remember some things better through movement than through sight. Time's up. Story one is true. Adenovirus 36 has been found to encourage the transformation of adult stem cells in fatty tissue into fat cells, as discussed on the daily Scientific American podcast, 60 Second Science, on August 20th. Although the obesity epidemic is no doubt more a result of the caloric factors Professor Popkin just discussed. Story four is true. Research with house cats at the University of Alberta found if they raise their front legs to move over an object and are then stopped by, for example, a bowl of food, they will raise their back legs when they continue moving, even if the object that they had to step over with their front legs was removed up to 10 minutes earlier. If they only see the object without having to step over it with the front legs, their memory of it fades after a few seconds after it's removed. And story three is true. On August 10th, CNBC's Erin Burnett actually said... You know, if China were to revalue its currency, or China is to start making, say, toys that don't have lead in them, or food that isn't poisonous, their costs of production are going to go up, and that means prices at Walmart here in the United States are going to go up, too. That laughter you heard was the audience of The Daily Show, which played that clip from CNBC. Breathtaking, isn't it? After receiving some criticism, Burnett attempted to clarify her comments, and she said... Nobody wants children to play with toys that are not safe. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. You don't want that. 
but safety and quality come with a price, end quote. Ms. Burnett apparently studied economics at the Milo Minderbinder School of Business. In an admittedly non-scientific poll that I took over the last few days, 100% of those surveyed were willing to pay more for food that was not poisoned. All of which means that story two about the top speed for T-Rex being nine miles per hour is totally bogus because a computer modeling study in the latest issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B found that T-Rex probably topped out at about 18 miles per hour. You would have been lunch. The fastest dinosaur modeled was a chicken-sized carnivore called Comphognathus, which looks like it could have hit 40 miles per hour. I was once in the Everglades with a friend who told me that an alligator could run faster than I could. I said to my friend, I don't have to run faster than an alligator. I only have to run faster than you. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And I'm a guest on the current episode of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. They're at iTunes and at www.theskepticsguide.org. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Oh, <laughs> Thank you.